Kevin Schroeder. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Cop Talk. My name is Kevin Schroeder, retired MIPD detective, and I'm here with my co-host, retired Captain Ed Mammon. Say hello, Ed. Hello, everyone. It's a pleasure for me to be here today with our distinguished guests and my buddy, Kevin. <laughs> Thank you, Ed. Today, we're very fortunate to have two special guests. One is James Patterson, and the other is Matthew Eversman. They are the the writers of a great new book that's out called Walk the Blue Line. And they're the authors of this book. And as we know right now, I would say James Patterson's probably the biggest author on this planet. And he sold almost half a billion copies of this book. It's a great book. And Matt is a retired first sergeant from the U.S. Army Rangers, actually U.S. Army Rangers. And thank you, Matt, for your service. And you're a true hero. On behalf of all law enforcement, I'd like to thank both these right now for writing this book. And on that note, let's get right to it. So, gentlemen, what inspired you to write this book? Well, this is actually the third that we've done in the series. It started with a book called Walk in My Combat Boots, which Matt and I put together. And our mission for Walk in My Combat Boots and for Walk the Blue Line is the same, that the men and women who in this case, Walk the Blue Line, that they would read this and say, Erisman and Patterson got it right. And that people who don't really understand the police would read it and finally go, I understand now. I didn't understand before, but I'm finally beginning to understand. And that's our real hope, that people will get it. You know, I just read a thing. I actually didn't read the whole thing, but it was in the New York Times yesterday in a magazine section, and it was about Louisville. And what happened down there? And look, that's a tragedy. Nobody, we don't want anybody to get to get murdered that shouldn't get murdered. And but nobody sits there and goes, the real problem is Louisville. Louisville is the problem. You know, Matt knows this. I mean, we Mogadishu or or a Cabral or Baghdad or whatever. We don't blame the soldiers for the city. We praise them for going into these terrible situations and doing the best they can, you know, and that's what people, that's one of the things that people need to understand, we think, about the police around this country. Very true, James. And and how did you pick the cops whose stories are featured in this book? Matt? Yeah, so, well, we had some good help all the way around. And, you know, like, like any of these good stories, they start with one or two. And, you know, as you all both know, within your, you know, this culture, you know, Ask a cop if he's got a buddy and he's got five and they've got five. And, you know, we talked with the FOP. We had some great support from some other law enforcement organizations at all. You know, everybody was so excited to help share stories when they learned that, you know, James Patterson was was the mastermind of this of this operation. And I got to tell you, it, it was we spent about eight months, Jim, I think it was about eight months doing interviews. Yeah, there are 7,000 pages of interviews for this book, which we, you know, obviously that would be a, a little too long as a book. So, and what we did, and I think this is part of what makes the book work as well as it does, at least in, in our opinion, is we take the interviews and then we would bring them into five or six pages or so for each for each police officer. And that keeps them interesting. So you'd, you'd learn about that person very quickly and then some of their stories. 
Ed? Well, you know, you have some very, very interesting uh, stories that, that I can relate to after 40 years' experience. I'm sure Kevin can. And there was one particular story that really got to me. In one of your stories, one of your subjects was involved in a shooting. And somebody from the media said to him something like, how does it feel to kill someone? Or yeah, isn't that amazing? Someone? Yeah. What an asshole. It's unbelievable that people, it really, it's just astonishing. One of the things, I, I stopped that very quickly because it's such a sore point. I mean, for you guys and for Matt and I, we would love that everybody in the media would read the damn book. It won't get reviewed by the New York Times, which is absurd. It was all over Fox. Finally, we got it on CNN with Jake Tapper. And the people that need to hear this stuff are not going to hear it. And if you understood police at all, you would never say what that reporter said. You would never say that. Someone's just almost lost their life or in a terrible situation. It's the last thing you would say. Well, let me give you an example that I remember vividly yeah. from 60 years ago. I came in the police department in 1959. I was a young cop, and I worked in a pretty tough neighborhood. And we had a police officer. By the way, his name was Joseph Gallo. Not Joseph Gallo, the gangster. <laughs> Joe Gallo, the cop. That's good. Joe Gallo, <laughs> Joe Gallo shot and killed someone. And Gay Pressman, I don't know if you remember Gay Pressman? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Gay Pressman had just started out as a street TV reporter because back in 1959, 1960, street reporting for TV was pretty new. And he showed up on the scene and I, I was there and he said to Joe, he said, would you do it again if you had to? And I almost fainted. I said, what a stupid question. If they ask a cop, he just killed someone. And he's yeah. asking, would you do it again if you had to? And that shows you the insensitivity of some of these news media. They, they yeah. don't care less. They yeah. ask these dumb questions. They Well, they just don't understand it. And you're going to write about something you should understand. I mean, you know, Matt and I, I, you know, understand a whole lot better. We don't understand. You know, I told Matt before when we did the walk in my combat boots, initially I said, you know, I understand, you know, soldiers now. And then at, at a certain point I said to him, I said, you know, that's baloney because I have never shot at anyone and I've never been shot at. So I don't really understand, but I understand it a lot better than I did. You know, I always say, fellas, I always say that, you know, police officers in a situation is a split second decision to make. Yeah. I hope it's the right decision. 99% of the time it is the right decision. But they had a split second decision to make. However, all these bosses and politicians and critics sit around a table for weeks, months and years to figure out if you made the right decision. Well, you only had a split second. They've got months to figure out maybe another way you could have gone. It's yeah. As if there's a take two, a script. This isn't a movie. It's real time. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, we went on, I've been on a bunch of ride alongs with the books and stuff. And then, and Matt and I went on one down here. And the sheriff who was taking us around, he said, one, one, he said, in that county, the previous year, there had been over a million calls for help just in that county. So, I mean, you know, I mean, the volume is unbelievable. And even people who say, you know, stay away when there's a problem, please come fast, you know. But the other thing is, and I don't know what they call this, but when they go in and they give you that experience and they bring in private citizens, they say, here's the gun, here's the situation. You've got a couple of seconds to decide. If they go through that, they understand something they didn't, they didn't understand before. And everybody in the media, if you're going to write about it, go do that because it's going to change how you, how you write. You're talking about the simulated firing range. Yes. Yeah, yeah, we've done that here in New York. We did that. We brought some of these politicians and they were shocked. Yeah. They got shot multiple times. Yeah, <laughs> or shot somebody that they didn't, you know. Yeah. Right. I'm sorry, you just shot the nanny there. 
That was quite an eye opener for them. Yeah. How hard was it for you to get or to cops to open up? Or yeah, was Matt? it easy? You know, I, I got to tell you, they were shockingly forthright. I mean, truly, most all of them were very, I, and I like to think, you know, that they had a little bit of trust and confidence given, you know, my background, knowing that they're talking to a guy who's been in a fight. And again, I don't mean that pat myself on the back, but, you know, they got in, they started going and very few of them were reticent to talk. In fact, I don't know, Jim, you saw, Jim, we got, you know, I'd do the transcribing and then bring it over to Jim and he'd see these, these 50 page yeah. interviews and you put a quarter in a cop, they like to talk. Yeah, I'd say, Matt, can you shut them down a little bit? 50 pages is too much on this one, you know. <laughs> and and well, if, I just, if I could just throw in, too, Kevin, you know, one of the things, though, that unlike, well, this is sort of a one-two punch, but one of the things that I, I found interesting was that not everybody, not every one of the cops would talk about mental wellness and post-traumatic stress. But the ones that did were very, very, very open, much like the soldiers, you know. So it, it really jumped out at me and Jim how, you know, soldiers have had a, a big focus on mental health and PTSD. And, you know, the doggone cops have, have had so little focus on that. And consequently, not, not that many would talk about it. But the ones that did seem to be getting good help. There's a reason for that, I believe, you know, that I think that, Cops hold a lot in. They don't want to tell their family about what they've seen. They don't want to tell others. They feel like no one really understands them. And when someone lends a sympathetic ear, guys like you, and they start to feel this trust, they'll open up. It's really catharsis. It's getting it out makes them feel better. I know yeah. I've experienced it myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we found that. Sometimes cops, too, may have a situation, as we're speaking about, you know, they don't want to speak about it in the open or to their supervisors because they're afraid of, you know, Maybe being put on light duty or guns yeah. taken away and you have to take a time out for a while, you know? Yeah. Kevin, that's why in some cases we, we just identify somebody with the first name or whatever, because they asked for it to be that right. way. Not that people did bad things, but that, you know, right. it, it wouldn't necessarily be to their benefit. But that's something that's going to have to change. And, people, and almost everybody we talked to said the changes have to happen. And that's one of them. Yeah. Police, I mean, they just need to evolve. They need to understand. Like you know, Matt has talked about, oh, look, here's a guy. Matt was actually the sergeant portrayed in the movie Black Hawk Down. So he's seen heavy stuff in his life. And well, go ahead, Matt. Why don't you talk about that part of it and, and the fact the everydayness of, of being a cop versus versus being in combat? Yeah, man. And, and this kind of piggybacks on what Jim said earlier. You know, I thought I knew a little bit about being a cop just from the knucklehead gun-to-gun -gun conversation. But what I realized, and I'm embarrassed that I didn't see this coming, was that, you know, we soldiers deploy, you know, certainly for the last 20-some years, deploy for three, six, eight, 12 months. Then we come back and refit and regroup and sometimes wait a year, year and a half, and then go again. But with you all, you know, you're you're deployed from the day you get your badge and your, your sidearm until the day you you leave the force. And I'm embarrassed that it took me to interview and listen to realize you're stuffing an awful lot into that doggone, you know, backpack that that all cops are carrying. And, and I'm, I'm embarrassed about just that fact. We can't even comprehend, you know, from the biggest gunfight in Mogadishu or Kandahar or anything. Yeah, that's one thing for a certain amount of time. But 
you know, you guys do it on Monday. You got to come back and do it on Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. It's shocking to me that someone could vilify the profession as that's so noble at protecting us. Not only that, but when you're, when you're off duty, you're technically on duty. Most yeah. departments require that you carry a firearm and your identification even when off duty and that you take action when you're off duty. Yeah. So that's another thing that has to be recognized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, right now, suicide is very high with law enforcement personnel. I know recently NYPD, I believe in the last six months, just lost three young kids to or young adults to you know suicide. Yeah, and on some, I, not to, I don't want to knock the media too much, but to some extent, that's on the media too. You got to tell those stories. You know, a cop just killed in Chicago over the weekend, was it? Whatever. And yeah, we don't hear about it. We, we, we need to hear about those stories. People need to understand. We did an interview the other day, and they had done a bunch of interviews, this, I think back in 2020, and they literally talked to people who called themselves liberals and other people who called themselves conservatives. And they said, well, how many shootings have there been where, I don't want to be racial about the thing, but where blacks have been shot by the police? And some of the liberals were going, like a thousand, I don't know. And that year there were 13. And that's no good. I mean, but it's going to happen. You get people out there with guns and other people with guns, Somebody's going to get shot occasionally, and it doesn't doesn't justify it or rationalize it. Nobody wants that to happen, but people just don't. There's no context to what's going on out there, and that's that's just ridiculous. That brings up another question I was asked you: Did you get any feedback from the anti-cop crowd? Yes, yeah, some, and some of it isn't. You know, like on Amazon or one of those, you can review the book or you can just put in a rating. The reviews. It's like 4.8 stars, okay? The ratings where they can just, who haven't read the book and just give it a one star, uh, you know, a whole bunch of people give it a one star because it's a book about the police, you know? The whole thing, I mean, if people take the New York Times, the bestseller list, you know, like it's supposed to be factual, you would think, right? So the first week, it doesn't get on the list, which is a, a little unusual for me. And, and I look at the numbers because Little Brown has them. And actually, it was the, the number three best-selling nonfiction. And it, it was quintuple, like the bottom six books on their list. And you go, what the hell is this all about? This is absurdity. We then, you know, call them up and I don't put the, the, little, the publisher does. But I think it's because it was a cop book. And then like last week, suddenly it's number five. Well, that week, it sold like a third of the books it sold the first week. So that just goes to show the list is, is cockeyed. And, and I, th- I I don't know for sure, but I think it was because it was a book about cops, which is, that's just nuts. I mean, it sounds like you have many stories, as you said, there was many stories you had to go through to pick the right ones for the book. Yeah. That said, do you think there'll be a volume two with all the stories you still have? It's possible. It's possible. We haven't gotten that far. We're Actually, we're doing Teachers next or we're one of the next ones. But, you know, one of the things I think that makes the thing so readable, and it's once again, it's not Matt or I, it's just the way people express themselves. Like you had one cop and it went into the neighborhood and they're going, you guys don't care. You guys don't care. And he said to the people, he said, if I didn't care, why would I be standing here in the freezing rain at four in the morning? You know, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. You know, wake up. And a lot of people expressing themselves in that way, memorable ways. And, and you know, we didn't set out to do this, but there's four times more action in this book than there is in an Alice Cross thriller. There's just a lot of, I mean, some of the stories, there's one woman, she'd only been a detective for a brief time. She went, this is daylight. She went on a drug bust 
and she sees action by the garage. She goes out to the garage. Two guys start shooting at her. She kills both of these guys and she gets shot 10 times, you know, and since then she's been on a job for 17, I think it's 17 years, right, Mike? You're not Mike. You're Matt. Close enough. I look like a Mike. I could be. And, you know, just to that point on that story, if I could just throw in a little color commentary, she talked about this engagement. If you all can imagine, you know, it's four feet away across the hood of a car. And you would think she would be getting into it like a soldier talking about a firefight. And and she was so, I almost say mild-mannered about it. She's just like, Matt, I, my training took over and it was this and I thought this. And, you know, when I never shot someone and when it happened, I thought he would go, you know, doing cartwheels all right. over the place. And she described it just so right. routinely. I mean, all I could think about is like, man, this woman's got ice water in her veins and she is a total pro, which I think represents the force. Certainly most that I, I if not all that I talked to, there, there are professionals. Right. Well, with that story, she only thought there may have been one shooter. It was two shooters in that story, correct? In the garage, right? Yeah. No, yeah. It was yeah. Shooter, right? yeah, right. Yeah, two shooters. She, she, took, yeah. she took care of one and then there was another one coming at her. Yeah. yeah, as I recall, she didn't realize how many times she was shot. No, no, she thought afterwards. she was grazed, I think. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Only afterward that she realized that she had multiple bullet wounds. Yeah, 10 is a lot. Yeah. Getting to the lighter side of your stories, one of them that I got a chuckle out of was the military police officer who stops the general on uh, the military yeah. base. The speeding, I believe. Yep. Yeah. And when he realizes he's a general, he figures, oh, my God, I'm, this is it. <laughs> it's all over for me. And uh, then the general sends him a commendation or something. Yeah. Like, that was yeah, a great he said story. you were right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Some of the stuff is heartwarming, which is also good. I mean, there's one guy and he would go into the local coffee shop and sometimes in his SWAT stuff and the breezes would come out and give him a hug. Or there was another guy and he had been trying to ha- to counsel an addict, a woman, woman who was an addict. I think this is in California. And, and it wasn't working. It just wasn't, wasn't making it. It was disappointing to him. And then years later, this woman comes up to him and she says, I was that addict and I'm graduating from college now. And, and would you please come to my college graduation? Yeah, you know, which is, is so cool, you know, and that's, that's a little piece of the job, too, or maybe a big piece of the job in a lot of ways. Jim, I was going to say to that point, and I don't know why, this is the first time I'm saying it out loud. I, I, I think that just about everyone we interviewed had a a very human story and when i say human you know it was it wasn't putting a handcuff on somebody it wasn't getting into a tussle it wasn't a fight but they all had a you know they would all say routine you know it was finding the lost literally dog or a grandmother or like you know just taking the extra time to know somebody in the community and and some of them are like notorious gang people that these cops are like, hey, you know what? Uh, uh, they're going to get to know me and I'm going to get to know them. And people don't know that. We don't know. We just think all the bad, and I say we, everybody but Jim and Matt, but, you know, the, the people just seem to think bad things and they don't realize the good that you all do just on a daily basis. The old, so, old expression is no one loves a cop until they need one. Yeah. And some of these towns, too, that, you know, that these police officers are writing from is their stories, they're telling their stories from, you know, their backup maybe. 10, 15 minutes away, you know, and yeah. you got oh, yeah. to hold up a good fight till your backup gets there. You know, it's not like a big city where you have six radio cars there in two minutes, you know, it's maybe 10 miles away is your backup. You're riding alone. So yeah. it's tough. 
stuff in these some of these areas down south. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, it's also interesting in some neighborhoods in big cities and some towns where the neighbors and the neighborhoods and the, and the cops have worked it out. There is some respect going back and forth within reason. You know, the, the, the town understands why the cops are there up to a point, you know, and that that's what needs to happen, you know, where it can happen. But more than anything else, people need to realize that some of these neighborhoods, some of these or half the city is, is just a freaking mess. We, you know, Memphis, we didn't interview anybody from Memphis, but Memphis always came up when, when we would talk to cops from the South. And they just said that the town, not the whole town, but parts of that town are just a mess. And, and that's what the story should be about. All right. You know, they start and they tell, OK, here's a tragedy. Shouldn't have happened, blah, 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 blah. And now instead of just repeating that story for the next three weeks with the same information, how about talking about Memphis and what the hell is going on there? How does that happen? What's going on in that town? You know? Yeah, but the news media would rather talk about the Scorpion unit. But that's not journalism, man. That's just that's just sloppy, crummy, mindless, no imaginations, no brains. It's just not it should not happen. It's just and I don't don't care whether you're writing about cops or food. I mean, do your damn job. You know, they just don't do their job. Well, probably, you know, the Scorpion unit was created to address the high crime problem. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And that's what happens. And then what, what happens is they do such a good job, they get they get out of control and they go overboard. So I've seen this happen before in police work where there's a particular problem, a special unit is created. And then what happens is the if you don't control that special unit who think they're elitists, uh, you have problems. So that's sure. not... No, eventually anything doesn't work anywhere. Here. Yeah. No, no, it doesn't help a lot of these big city police departments lowering their standards to come on. The job. Exactly. I mean, you know, recruitment and retainment is, is you know, is tough right now. It's hard to recruit. Yes. Nobody wants to take the job. We getting paid not much. I mean, here's a job, law enforcement, where police officers get paid, you know, a lot less than, you know, people wouldn't do this job for a million dollars. Cops do it for a lot less. And so, you know, you can't expect, you know, I know with NYPD, a lot of guys go to different departments because of the, you know, because of the pay scale. They, you know, they feel like they get treated much better and they get paid well, let's say in Nassau County versus New York yeah. City, unfortunately. Yeah. You know? That's the fact. That's the truth. You know, picking up on that, are you, are you gentlemen aware that the commanding officer of the New York City Police Academy in the last few days said she wants to lower the physical requirement that they don't have to do the one and a half mile run? so that they can get more women in the job. And this is against the, from what I read, it was against the opinion of the police commissioner. Now, the commanding officer of the police academy works for the police commissioner. So you have her, they're both female, and um, it's a ridiculous situation. If you lower the standards, I mean, what are you going to have? The idea is to get more women in the department because they they can't make the run, according to this commanding officer, whose name is Juanita Holmes. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar Mm -hmm. with this? No, no, no. Well, I, I can't run a mile and a half, so I'm, I'm not, I, I can't comment on that one. Right, but you're talking about recruits. <laughs> I know, I know, in, I'm kidding. In the early right. 20s, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, um, yeah a mile and a half is not, that's not that far, so yeah. Well, actually, yeah. it's 1.4 miles. Uh, okay, all right. Yeah, it's just not really that hard. But you just, the point is, you can't keep low any standards, because then you're going to, you're going to have corruption in the police departments if you really, well, with the standards, you're not sure who you're going to be hiring. Yeah. Hire well, that's one of the help. issues with Memphis too, where I, I think they they've been lowering the standards for a long time. I don't know. I don't know. I, I have no idea, but the that particular five guys, but the standards are definitely not what they should be. James and Matt, you're military personnel, but 
James, this question is to you. Would writing this book uh, have its changed your mind in regards to law enforcement, what they really go through day to day? You hear me, man. You hear me being emotional here. Absolutely. Okay. You know, the, what, what we try to do in all these books, uh, the Walk My Combat Boots, this one, and then we did one in ER Nurses, is that people would understand something that they think they understand, but they don't understand. And it's crucial. You know, law and order is such a big deal in this country, and it should be right now. And doing right by cops and understanding what they're doing. And also, you know, and, and, and things need to change as well. But none of that happens if people don't understand. And this book, you if you read this book, you will understand. And also, we've gotten a lot of, of back from law enforcement officers and families who have read it, especially families, because a lot of times you mentioned it, Kevin and Ed, that they won't talk to their families about what they're doing. The families read this thing and they go, oh, I finally understand there what you do, you know. So, so that's useful, too. Well, it's a great book, Walk the Blue Line. I want to thank you, gentlemen, for coming on. I know you're very busy. And thank you on behalf of all law enforcement personnel. Thank you. Okay. And thank you for being on Cop Talk. Ed? Yes, it was a pleasure meeting you, fellows. And I hope you continue your great work. Okay. Uh, thanks. Thanks very much. Thanks for having us on. Thank, Thank you, Matt. Thanks for your As service. Always. Thank you, Matt. Thank I like you. the glasses, man. I like them. I don't know. <laughs> you're, the, you're, the, you're the best guy I've talked to today, Jim. Thank you. See you, guys. Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the the industry. Call now or go to prioritygold.com.